0: Well, over the last few months, we've begun studying the book of Titus, so you can go ahead and open it, and um, two weeks ago, we started looking at the profile of the godly man, or for today's purposes, as we begin, the profile of the perfect man. Not to say that if you do everything that Titus 2 says, you'll be the perfect man, but that is one way our world talks about manhood. Who is the good man, the perfect man, the righteous man? So I figured that I should inform you of what people think about the perfect man. I feel like it's the right way to go before we get into Titus chapter 2. So here's the definition of the perfect man. The perfect man is an unknown creature available only in books and movies. So that's a good start. Write it down. Take pictures. I see at least one person is taking a picture. I should memorize that. Guys, memorize it. It's going to help you in life. So you can go with that or you can go with Confucius. You can go the philosophical route to figure out the perfect man who said the following. A perfect man, can you just turn that on so I can also kind of track with you guys? Nope, you can't. Okay, the TV died. All right. A perfect man is highly value-minded and doesn't follow anyone. He's modest in words because he knows that people may make distortions easily in their speech. He's a man of action, not words. A perfect man searches for everything in himself, while an inferior man searches what he wants in others. A perfect man is worried that he might not find the truth, but he's not afraid of poverty. Not sure how those two coexist, but they're not contradictory. You can be anyways. He's sad about not having skills and abilities, but not about being unknown among people. So if you're Confucius or if you're a follower of Confucius, that is your perfect man profile. Or you can go the list route. If you can fulfill certain lists, maybe this is the perfect man. So you've got 12 12 requirements to be a perfect man. He's smart. He supports your career. So I guess this is the girl looking for the perfect man and this is what she wants. He supports your career. He makes you laugh. You share similar values. He's a gentleman. He's faithful. He's honest. He makes an effort with your friends and family. He's willing to work for it. He has a positive attitude. He protects you. And my favorite, number 12, he's tuned into his emotions, <laughs> not your emotions. There's no requirement. So ladies, don't get mad when we have no idea about what's happening in your emotions because that's not on the list. If you want to go the physical route, okay, what if you want to define the perfect man physically? The perfect man, and it's not on the screen because it's not appropriate to put on the screen, <laughs> I want no IT evidence of this thing. All right. The perfect man has a symmetrical face. Look at all the girls. Yes. <laughs> Healthy skin and a well-proportioned physique. The perfect man has tall heights, like his tall and his high, I guess, tall heights, wide shoulders, marginally wider hips, large defined upper, uh, upper arms, a broad chest, <clears throat> large shoulders and lats, and a visible symmetrical six-pack. Is that fair, ladies? Yeah? Why is everybody not willing to accept this guy? Come on. (laughs) Women, I continue, also tend to be more attracted to men who are taller than they are and display a high degree of facial symmetry and look more manly than women. Just reading what I've found. Okay, how about this one? When it comes to attraction, physical appearance often plays a huge role. Even if somebody has a great personality, sorry boys, it can be difficult to feel a connection if they don't look good. I'm not going to say anything else. How about this one? Describing the perfect man. So physical appearance. appearance. Here's some advice, I guess. Uh, Shower. Use a deodorant. Shave once in a while, clip your nails every so often, and maybe you'll become more appealing to women. So that's your physical appearance. The second is your personality trait. You should be kind. You should show empathy. You should be humorous and intelligent. Like opening a door for a girl is good. Right, ladies? Yes? Yes? It's like three of you said that. What's (laughs) up with this? So years ago, I'm walking into the worship center. And there's a girl walking with me, a friend. And so I open the door for her. And she's like, Mark, I can open my own door. (laughs) So I walk in and close the door behind me. (laughs) Be careful what you say, ladies. (laughs) Um, Values. What about values and beliefs? Uh, You need to make sure that your values and beliefs, beliefs align with hers. So here, you guys know we prefer the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. So if you want to win her heart, buy her an LSB and one for yourself. And I'll get 10% royalty and my brother will get a 10% royalty and on and on. I'm kidding. We don't get paid for the LSB. Communication. It's important to have effective communication in a relationship. So listen to her. Express your thoughts carefully and engage in meaningful conversations feel like last time I said, don't grunt, right? Remember the grunting comments? Yeah. So this is what girls want. No grunting. Ambition and drive. You should set goals. You should have a strong work ethic and you should have motivation. Like get out of bed before 12 p.m. Unless you're Jared Lopez. Where are you, Jared? I give you a pass because you're a nurse. I saw Jared. There you are. Okay, confession time. Did you ever get out of bed past 12 p.m.? There we go. See? Anybody else is a nurse? I know there's at least a few over here. There we go. There's one. Yeah. You guys do 24 shifts, 25-hour shifts and all that. Okay. Next, ambition and drive. That's it. Get out of bed before noon. Respect and consideration. Respect her. Treat her like a weaker vessel. First Peter 3. Compatibility. This is a good one. I like this one. Make sure you have shared interests, shared hobbies, and life goals. Make sure that you have a similar lifestyle. You, know, you don't want somebody who is high-maintenance paired up with a low-maintenance person, for example. And make sure you have long-term inspiration. So if you have 24 pairs of shoes, boy, and she only has 12, that could be a problem lifestyle-wise, right? Remember when I told you guys I counted my shoes one time and I had 26 pairs and I found out I have more shoes than my sister? And I was so depressed <laughs> until I bought the next pair of shoes. And that was all good. <laughs> Um, make sure you don't have more wallets than purses. I don't think a guy's wallet needs to match his suit. Does it? No, I don't want a guy answering. I want a girl answering. Does a guy's wallet have to match the suit or the outfit? There you go. Thank you. So my ten my ten wallets are okay, right? All right. Emotional intelligence, and well, and here, emotional intelligence. <clears throat> Don't make her cry on your first date. That's it. That's all I want. Well, that is the perfect man from Google. And so, if you want to be that guy, keep Googling. I think it's fun to think about what the world expects of men and women in relationships, but also just in society. I mean, some of those qualities are excellent and biblical, I would say. Be kind, be empathetic, you know, care for people. And I would say that Titus 2, as it describes the man of God, a man, not just a pastor or an elder, but Titus 2 is all about the normal Christian man. Titus 1 is about the Christian leader. Titus 2 is the normal Christian man or the normal Christian woman. And so, two weeks ago, we started this section. And I'd like to continue with the men this evening. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the women. So, you can follow along in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 as we get back into what a godly man looks like. As for you, Paul says to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslave too much wine teaching what is good so that, the, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So that, they, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge servants to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I said that there are eight qualities that Paul brings out for the godly man. And we looked at the first three last time and we'll wrap it up this evening. The first one being that he has balanced thinking. That in his mindset about life, he is balanced. This is all about self-control in your thought life. Just as much as sober means not to be drunk, you have control over your actions in the category of your mind. It means the same thing that you have control over your thoughts. And specifically, we talked about it being balanced that you're not excessive in one direction or another. You're not extreme in how you think about life. The second quality was that you have a respectable reputation. And we got that from the word dignified in verse two. From temperate, which is self control to dignified. That means that people think of you as a man of respect. I said that in the Roman world, this was a term that was associated with the gods. In other words, there's was this element of being above the norm. You are more elegant. You are more respectable. You are lofty. Not in how you think about yourself, but in your reputation. That you're not a goof off. At the same time... Because of the first word and the next word, there is a sense of being appropriate for the context. And so you're not always serious when you're hanging out with people. You can have fun. But at the right time, you are appropriately serious. There's a wedding going on upstairs. You're not going to be so, just serious and uh, kind of a party pooper. But if there's a funeral, which has happened, I think there's one today, you also understand where you are. That's the idea of being dignified. But it also leads us naturally to the idea of being sensible. You are sensible in your life or disciplined in your life. Because your life ultimately will become consistent of various decisions. So every single thing that you do and every single decision that you make, it is characterized by discipline. And I said there's really three applications of this. It's your passions. Do you have self control over your passions? And that's everything. Not just purity, but also saying no to food, if necessary, and saying yes to things that you have to say yes to. You also have control over your projects. In other words, finish what you start. There's an element, thankfully that didn't hit anybody, uh, there's an element of measurement in your life that if you start a project and you finish a project, that's one way to know that you're advancing and you're moving forward in, in life. And the third category of application is priorities. You know what you should say yes to and what you should say no to. In other words, you have the right priorities in your life. You prioritize your spiritual life. It's not something that you do whenever you feel like it or whenever it's the right weekend. It's the Christmas weekend or the Easter weekend or the Thanksgiving weekend. And so those are the special religious holidays and you're going to prioritize your spiritual life on those special holidays. Rather, you understand that the priority of your life is your relationship with God. And so Paul says, as a man of God, you are temperate, you're dignified, and you are sensible. But number four, you are sound in faith, meaning you have genuine faith. You have genuine faith. When Paul brings that out at the end of verse 2, he says, sound in faith, love, and perseverance. That's called the Christian triad. The Christian triad appears in multiple times in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, now remain three, faith, love, and hope. Or 1 Timothy 6, 11. Paul says that the man of God aggressively and actively pursues faith, love, And perseverance. In 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says, this is what a man of God displays, those three qualities. And he follows after them. So in other words, there's in multiple places in the New Testament that this Christian triad appears. And it appears in our passage in verse 2. So we're talking about being genuine, first of all, in your faith, in your piety. You are a true Christian. You know it. And your life demonstrates that you know what you believe, and it flows out in how you love other people, that's the second word, and then how much you hold on to God and pursue Him even in the middle of a difficult season, that's perseverance. Your personal piety is characterized by a true attachment to God. It was George Mueller who said, the most important thing about a person is not how they can serve God this day, but how they can get their soul into a happy state in God. In other words, this beginning of a day should be focused on, I need to make sure that my relationship with God is in the right place. Piety characterizes a true man of God. And those times when we sin, it's really an expression of what John Piper says of your dissatisfaction with God. He says it this way. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. And I think there's truth in this verse. Well, Paul says, first of all, if you have sound faith, it proves that you are a genuine man of God. Now, we talked about this idea of soundness. It appears multiple times in chapter 1. It'll keep appearing in chapter 2. And I said that word is the word for healthy. So in other words, you have a healthy Faith, a healthy understanding of your relationship with God. Go to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John writes about what it means to mature in the Christian life. And so in verse 12, he says it this way. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him, who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young man because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So, so John says, "I'm writing to you fathers in verse 13, because you know him. You have a relationship with the individual God who has been from the beginning. Verse 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. So an element of spiritual maturity from child to young man to father status, and this isn't gender specific necessarily. It's talking about just maturity. is that you actually have a deep relationship with God the Father. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen from the the, the first moment when you repent. If, if John is saying, I'm talking to fathers, older individuals, symbolically speaking, that means that it takes time to develop that relationship with God the Father to know him and to trust him as the creator God, which means he's in control over everything. I remember Pastor John saying this, I don't know if it was public or private, but he said this, he said, the reason that I can trust God and not be impacted emotionally by trials in my life is because I've been a Christian for so long and I've seen God act providentially in so many areas and ways and I have evidence to look back on and keep trusting him. That's why Psalm 103 tells us to remember, write down everything that God is doing in your life because at some point in your life, there will be a moment when you're going to have to be encouraged and the way you will encourage yourself is by looking back at the trail of evidence of God's protection and provision for you. That's the idea of knowing God. It's recounting his providences in your life, and that stimulates and strengthens genuine faith. So to have healthy faith, to use that terminology in verse 2, it means you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, and you know who you believe in. That's the element of piety. But there's a fifth quality. The fifth quality is you are exemplary in your service. You are exemplary in your service. So taking up the word sound in love. Sound in faith. Now, number five, sound in love. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 45, it says this. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now faith, love, and hope abide, but the greatest of these is love. Galatians 5, 6, the Christian life, is faith working itself out in love. Those are just a few of the Bible verses that speak to the relationship between faith and love. That's how you know if somebody has healthy faith, verse two, because they have healthy love. They have a true understanding that my life isn't about being served. My life is about serving Others, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. To what degree? To give His life a ransom for many. That should be the goal and the life verse of every single Christian. We've, we live to serve for uh, to serve others, or our life is characterized by faith working itself out through love. And the essence of the gospel is God so loved the world, right? John 3:16 So if the whole story of your Christian journey begins with, "For God so loved the world," begins with love, God's love for you, and then he expects us to love one another and to love others in the world as well. Galatians 6:10 makes it very clear, our love isn't limited to only Christians, then that is one way to measure the health of your Christian life. Do you actually love other people? Are you a servant? In Titus 1.5, Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. It doesn't say that you would import elders from other islands or other parts of the Roman Empire. I left you in Crete so that you would set things in order, and in that context of Crete, you would appoint qualified individuals to be spiritual leaders. Here's how that applies to us. The future elders and deacons who are men and women, by application as well, of this church, the future elders, the future deacons, women, let me make sure I'm biblically accurate here, lest you complain to MacArthur. Biblically, only men can be elders and pastors. The future generation, whether it's this church or any other faithful church, it will come from the local church. That's why we talk so often on this campus about training up the next generation. Chris Hamilton is currently doing a class the last Sunday of the month. The goal of that class is to identify the future deacons and elders for the church because we know one day. MacArthur will be in heaven. Chris Hamilton will be in heaven. All of us will be in heaven. And if Jesus doesn't come back, Lord willing, this church will continue. And so Paul's message is make sure you identify the people who can be elders in that church. Man, listen up. That applies to you. If you're a Christian, you should aspire to spiritual leadership in the church. It doesn't mean that everybody will be an elder or a preacher or a pastor But it does mean that your aspiration should be, I want my life to be characterized by healthy love for other people, perseverance, faith, and if that's your life, then you will be identified by the leadership of that church as an individual who should be serving and leading in some capacity. Hopefully, you can see the connection between chapter one and chapter two. The recruiting for chapter one happens from chapter two. Because that's applicable to all men in the church. But really the emphasis here is to be a true man of God and to be a true leader in the church is not about your rights or some kind of entitlements. You know, after 10 years of faithfully doing this, I got promoted to deacon status or I got promoted to elder status. That's not how Christian leadership and service works. It's about understanding what Jesus said to his disciples when they were fighting for the right and the left side of his throne in the future. He said, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the non-Christians aspire to, to be at the front, to be at the top. That is not supposed to be this, this way among you. He says to them, but the greatest of you is to be a servant. Today, I spent the whole day in a board meeting and this university. And the first, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, we spent reflecting on the life of a man who just died. He was 51. He, for 18 months, he battled cancer. His name was David Van Wingarden. And he was a board member of the university and the seminary for probably three years or so. And uh, 18 months ago, he was at, uh, um, diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the board members, Pastor John was there, and many of the other individuals, you'd recognize their names, we kind of just talked for almost an hour about the impact he left on the lives of the people in that room and on others. And I remember in October, we had another board meeting and he and I just kind of got placed next to each other for dinner. So for a couple hours, we talked and he was a, a COO level the huge, the family built a huge empire in the florist world back in Ohio, uh, serving the world with flowers and all that. And so he was the COO of this family business. And so once he found out my role here at the church and kind of overseeing operations and stuff, we spent a couple hours talking. He just kept giving me business advice and just management advice. And it was one of the best uh, conversations I've had with him in a few years. And then he said, hey, I need to um, walk to, to one side of the restaurant to another. Can I just put my hand on you and just follow you? Because he was blind. Because cancer killed his vision. And so I thought, He's 51, and he flew here from Ohio for a few days of meetings because he still believed in he's supposed to serve this institution, even, he can, even though he can't see. A month later, we talked on the phone. I was about to fly out to Europe to preach and teach in Italy, and so once he found out what I'm doing, he started talking to me about Italy and how much he loves Italy and gave me all this advice and how he couldn't wait to talk again and to see how my trip was. And he was so focused on making sure that my time in Italy was the best. And then in December, uh, the week of Christmas, right before, I I think a day before Christmas, we talked on the phone again. And I knew this would be the last time we talked because we got an email that he is in his final couple days of his life. And so we talked for about 15 minutes and I kept interrupting him because I was trying to find a way to encourage him and thank him for the conversation in October, for the conversation in November, for the prior conversation earlier last year and the year before. And it was impossible because he kept speaking and just encouraging me the whole time. And I just reflected on that this morning with the man and even over Christmas, he's been on my mind a lot lately. You just think, he's 51. He's pretty young to die. Left five kids behind. And his wife. And he's a graduate of TMU years ago. But... The legacy that he left behind, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't an elder. He was a businessman, successful one. But everybody in that room, from John MacArthur to all the other individuals who are all very successful in their careers, said this man was a servant. Guys, it's not about having a pulpit. And that's how you serve. It's not being called a deacon Or an elder or some other fancy title that you might think is something that I should obtain. It's about a way that we serve. Is your service exemplary? And that example, I bring it up because there are people like that in this group. There are people like that in this church. And I hope that's your aspiration. That when people think of you and they create your profile, that's on the list. He's an exemplary servant in the church, in his community, in in his friendships. Because that's exactly what Paul expects. You are an exemplary individual. In verse 7, Paul picks up similar language when he says, In all things, show yourself, this is now speaking to younger men, an example of good deeds. So that's to older men. This is now to younger men. And the idea there is a type. The Greek word is tupos. That's the type. A model. That's what that means. You are a model of good deeds. In other words, you're worthy of imitation. And good deeds there, the idea is inherently good. Everything you do is characterized by goodness. The way to apply it simply here is, We have new people here every single week. I just met somebody right before we started. When you walk into this room, why are you here? And there's many answers. But are you here with this intent to serve somebody? Because that's what verse 7 is about. I'm here to be a model of good deeds, to serve another person, because I know I might have had a bad week, but you're not alone. So have other people. And being sensitive to people's situation in life and then serving them in that situation is a part of the Christian life that we call, you are sound in love. That's what Paul is expecting of every single true man of God. You are exemplary in your service. But you're also, end of verse 2, steadfast in your perseverance. You are steadfast in your perseverance because life is hard. Trials are a part of life. That's exactly what Job 5.7 says. As much as sparks fly up from a fire, so is man born unto trouble. In other words, it's guaranteed. And in this life, we will have difficulties. We will have trials. And so Paul, understanding that, says, you, Christian man, should be sound in your perseverance, you are steadfast when life isn't going well, because disappointment and discouragement will be a part of your experience, you will be lonely, you will be weak, you will be misunderstood, you'll be maligned, you won't be appreciated all the time, you'll think life is unfair, somebody will get the promotion that you feel like you should have gotten, this will happen in the church employment, and it'll happen in secular employment, Just because somebody works in the church, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect in the church. I would say we try to be as biblical as possible, but it's not always easy because we're still sinners, those of us who work in the church. So you'll feel like, man, I'm being treated unfairly. But in that moment is your response to whine and complain and fight. We talked about that last time. Or is it, okay, I'm going to persevere. Understand that this may not be exactly what I thought or hoped or I deserve, but I'm going to endure. I'll be steadfast in this difficult season. Perseverance. James 1, read that passage if you're struggling in this way right now, because the point of trials is to purify your life and to make you more like Christ as you persevere in that direction. But the basis of all this is purity in your theology. So we're going to skip down to verse seven because verses three through five are for women. And we'll talk about that next time. So looking down to the next section of man, we see in verse six, speaking to young men, they're to be sensible. We talked about that last time and even earlier, I just defined it for you back in verse two. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. We talked about that. Now, with purity in doctrine. That's the next unique idea here. You are pure in doctrine. So, verse 2 is talking about you are sound in faith. That's your personal faith in God. It is characterized by a healthy faith. You are healthy in your piety. Here, we're talking about the objective doctrine that you believe. Purity In doctrine, the language that Paul uses here actually has to do with somebody who is the opposite of a seducer, one who corrupts. It's really strong language. In other words, your understanding of the Bible and doctrine and theology has no corruption in it. There's no deception in it. There's no seduction in it. It's really strong language to help us understand that we as Christians need to aspire to purity in our understanding of God's word. It's not easy. It takes years. It takes a lot of work and reading and study to get there. That's why we have sermons and we have Bible studies and we have discussion groups to help us understand what does the Bible really mean and how does it apply to my life? And so, An expectation of a man of God is that he is pure in doctrine. Firstly, he is devoted to the truth. He's not just one who opens his Bible on Friday or Sunday. No, he's devoted to the truth, the word of God, and he studies it. He reads it. He asks questions of it. What does that mean? How do I get to know God better in this specific passage? Secondly, he's disciplined in the truth. You say no to things and you say yes to God because that's how it's going to be. If you want to spend time with God, you have to say no to other things. Thirdly, you are directed by the truth. Meaning you apply the word of God to every area of your life. As Psalm 119 verse 105 says, it is a lamp unto my feet. Is that true? That this book actually shines a path for you because it's on. And the Bible can't be on if you don't know it. Therefore, there is no light creating a path for you to follow in Christ's likeness. And then the fourth is you are defensive of the truth. You are defensive of the truth. In other words, you know the Bible so well that when people speak falsely about Scripture, you know that that's a lie. And you're able to refute false teaching. That's an expectation from Acts chapter 20 of spiritual leaders. That's an expectation of Titus. Paul will get to that, of Titus specifically in this text. In other words, you know your Bible and you can defend the truth of it. And this doesn't happen by simply Becoming a Christian at 10 and then dying at 80 and those 70 years, not reading your Bible, not studying your Bible, not spending any time in the Bible. All of a sudden, just because you're a Christian for 70 years, you're going to be able to accomplish all this. No, it takes time and years in order to truly know the word of God. And my encouragement is that you make some decisions. Whenever I talk to somebody who's a new member in our church, I ask him almost every time the same question. Have you read your Bible cover to cover? How many of you have I asked that question of? If I did your membership interview, 99%, sure, I asked you that question. There you go, a couple. Okay, I'm not lying. There's a few of you. And it's because I know that you believe that this book is God's word. I really know that you believe that. At least that's what you're telling me. And if that's true, then wouldn't you actually want to read what God said? If you truly believe in the God of the Bible, and you truly believe that this is his communication to man, wouldn't you prioritize this book above other books at some level? It doesn't mean that you have to do it at 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. or 8 a.m. It doesn't mean that. The Bible doesn't speak to that, that way. But it does mean that when you are alert, you are prioritizing this book because you actually believe this is not a book that was written by people and has no unique supernatural value. And I think that's the check that we have to all have of ourselves. Because if we don't spend time in this book, maybe the question is I don't really be, the answer is I don't really believe that this is God's word. And so you treat it like another book. And that's the implication. And so Paul says, you are pure in doctrine if you're a true man of God because that will sustain your life. And we do that by spending time in scripture. When I read 1 John chapter 2, you might have noticed that it said this about young men. Verse 14, he says this, I've written to young men because the word of God abides in you. That's one way to know that you are maturing in your Christian life from child to young man to ultimately father status is that the word of God abides in you. Well, finally, Paul's eighth quali- quality is you are sound in speech. That's verse eight. So dignified, we already looked at earlier. That's respectable. That is elegant and, and uh, you rise above the fray and all the chaos of life. And your reputation is a one of respect. And then verse eight, you are sound in speech. That is beyond reproach. Matthew twelve thirty four says this, the mouth speaks. Out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so if your speech is not above reproach, it means your heart is filled with stuff that isn't above reproach. It's that simple. Just hear somebody talk and they'll know exactly what's in that person's heart. That's Jesus. So either believe him or you don't. And I think that's how we assess maturity. That's how we know who we want to spend time with and with whom we don't want to spend time with. Because ultimately that kind of uh, life will impact us as well. So if you don't have control over your tongue, man, it really is an insight into your heart. That's how we need to understand that. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. James 3 speaks about we will give an account for every word that we have said. And so we need to live in that way, that our speech is beyond reproach. Why are there such important qualifications? Why is the standard so high? Look at the end of verse 8. So that the opponent, those who revile Christians, the world is filled with them seemingly more and more every single year so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I said this at the very beginning of the study, that we're talking about our reputation as Christians. So in other words, our reputation as a church and as individuals within the church is dependent upon how you speak, how you live your life. And so we protect the reputation of the church because we're supposed to adorn the gospel according to verse 10, draw people to the gospel with our lives. And so Paul says, this is why this matters because people who mock us will be put to shame. We're not shaming them. We're not mocking back. We're not reviling. First Peter chapter two tells us don't do that. Jesus didn't on the cross. You don't do that in your life. You don't revile when you're being reviled. But the way we actually make a stand is by putting people to shame because of our godly living. We're not putting any obstacle in a person's way when we share the gospel and then our life matches that proclamation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, make it very, makes it very simple. six three. we give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Give no cause for offense in anything. That's the goal. That's the ambition. That's the standard. And I hope that is exactly how you view your life. Ladies, some of this applies to you. And when we get into your section next week, there'll be some overlap. But generally speaking, this is the Christian ambition. Is that we live in such a way that people look at our lives and they say, how can I have that kind of a life? We adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives. It's hard. The Bible says it's a battle. It's war. It's lifelong. We have to have the Holy Spirit sustaining us in endurance and in victory over all sin. That's coming from all sorts of places in the New Testament. But this should be the profile that we aim to fulfill. Let me read to you a prayer from the Valley of Vision called A Disciple's Renewal. Oh, my Savior, help me. And that should, like, cause you to pause and pray. Help me. He put a period right after that. Help me. I'm so slow to learn so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I'm pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I'm blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes, grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, meditate on thee, gaze on thee, sit like Mary at thy feet, lean like John on your breast, appeal like Peter to thy love, count like Paul all things done. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. That's the prayer and the renewal prayer. Because everything I just talked about cannot be done in your own power. I don't care if you're a man or a woman, it can't be done. That's why when we get to the next section in verses 9 through 10, and then especially in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. That's where it all starts. If you're a true Christian, verse 11 is the first step of everything we just talked about. If you're not a Christian, verse 11 is the first step for everything we just talked about. It begins with you recognizing that God's grace has appeared in your life and it's bringing salvation to you. And if you recognize your sin and you repent from that sin, meaning you turn away from it and you say, I don't want to live that life anymore. I want to follow Christ then Christ promises to forgive you of every single sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You'll, you'll be relieved of that guilt. But more importantly, you will be forgiven such that there's no more judgment day for you. There's no more hell for you. And all the struggles and the lusts and deceptions that you've been following, believing, and pursuing will become your past. And you now begin to love and follow Christ. And you do that until you see him face to face. That's what God expects of every single man in the church. Those eight characteristics. And guys, I hope that's what you want. And that's why we help each other. That's why we have the men's ministry on Wednesday nights. That's why we have uh, sometimes men's breakfasts here to really huddle up and talk about what does it mean to be a man of God? And where am I messing up? And how should I change my life in order to be a more godly man of God? Not competing with one another, but following and becoming models of service and love. And I think if we all made that commitment, and we've only got one month behind us, you got 11 months. If we made that commitment for this year, I do believe God would honor that. And at the very least, verse 8 would be true. The opponent will be put to shame. But... More importantly, you will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. Let me pray to that end. And I hope you guys know that that's what I really want for all of you men. That is my prayer for all of us regularly. Lord God, I thank you that we can honestly assess ourselves in your presence. Paul's standard is pretty high. And we aspire to it because we know it pleases you. And it's who Christ was. And so we want to be like Jesus. We want to follow him. We want to love like him. We want to serve like him. We want to endure like him. We want to speak like him. We want to be balanced like him. We want to have self-control. And we, have, we want to have a reputation of dignity. And I pray that that would be true of all of us. That's simply a desire. A desire but a desire that's followed by action, that we truly would be those individuals who live to serve you and those around us. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.